I invite you to take your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 1, and we will be reading the entire chapter. So may we give attention to his word as it is read. Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mehlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they should become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Oh, Father, may we see your kindness this morning. 
May we see your goodness in the midst of trial. May we see your kindness, your loving kindness in the midst of calamity. And may we be stirred once again for the love of Christ that you have given us infinite kindness in Christ, in the gospel. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. You'd bless the preaching of your word. Keep me from error. I pray that you would edify your people, glorify yourself. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning, Faith Community Church. It's good to see you this morning, this blustery, almost summer-like Lord's Day. Pastor Logan will be away for the next couple of weeks, and I do encourage you to continue to pray for he, for Lindsay especially, for the girls as they are at Mayo, that you would be praying for clarity of treatment, that you would be praying especially even for Lindsay's continued healing, for the care that God would provide in that way. So for this week and next, I will be filling in. I will be preaching, and if you know me, you know that I love the Old Testament, so we are in Ruth. Why Ruth? I think there are a number of reasons that we can think about. First of all, because all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is useful to the believer. All Scripture is profitable for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness. I believe that the Lord has something profitable for us in Ruth. Very closely related to that, I believe that all Scripture is Christian Scripture. Jesus Himself tells us, He told His disciples, do you remember on the road to Emmaus when He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. All Scripture is Christian Scripture because all Scripture in some way points to Jesus Christ. Thirdly, and following closely from that, I believe Ruth is a fitting companion to the book of John that Pastor Logan has been preaching through. In John, we've seen the glories of Christ. We've witnessed His miracles, His signs, His clear divinity. When He claims to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We've seen His humanity, His tender compassion toward Mary and Martha and the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. And recently of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as Israel's rightful king. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as the king of kings, the rightful heir to David's throne, can be traced to the book of Ruth. I would guess that we have a few readers in our midst this morning, people who love books. And I wonder if any of you readers, when you read stories... You skip ahead to the end just to find out what will happen. Where you are in the book, you wonder, how does this fit with what ultimately happens? Surely none of you do that. Cheat. 
Or why is it that we can reread books? We already know how the story ends and we reread them. Or we watch movies several times already knowing how the story ends. There's no mystery anymore. Why do we do that? Because the end of the story provides the meaning for all that took place in the story. We can see, if we know the end, how this plot twist or that character development or this event led to the final conclusion. In fact, if you know how the story ends, you become a more thoughtful reader of the story. Same is true for the book of Ruth. The author gives us a clue to the meaning of the whole story, and it's at the very end. So we're going to do this. We're going to go to the very end, and we're going to see. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Now, we're really getting ahead of ourselves. A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then you see in the next three or four verses the genealogy of David ending in verse 22. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. In the book of Ruth, we have the story of the great-grandparents of King David and the great ancestor of King Jesus. Not only was Jesus the son of David, he was in some ways, the son of Obed and the son of Ruth and Boaz. And so the main intention of the book, the main thrust of the book of Ruth is this. God, in His loving kindness, ensures that a family line will not perish so that the future promises to David can be fulfilled, which find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Ruth is a story not so much about Ruth or Naomi or Boaz, but about God. About God who is faithful to His covenant promises. About God who is faithful to His people. About God who provides a Redeemer. About God who is kind and good even when His people can't see it and can't make sense of it. So we move through each chapter, we'll see these themes of faithfulness and covenant and loyalty and redemption and blessing and family and yes, love. But most importantly, we'll witness God's providence and His loving kindness. I want to explore that theme with you this morning in chapter 1. In loving kindness, God orchestrates the events and the circumstances of life. He rules over the affairs of men in order to bring about His good purposes. I dare say that's not a new thought for most of you in this room. In fact, most of you would gladly affirm that God works out all things for His good purposes. But I want to ask you a question. Has your high view of God ever resulted in low thoughts of God? Or said another way, has your high theology resulted in a poor doxology? 
Doxology means a word of praise, a good word. You may believe that God is sovereign over all the events of life. You may even believe that God is sovereign in your trial, in your sorrow. But the question is, do you believe that God is for you in your sorrow and in your calamity? Is he personally involved? Does he care? Yeah, he's sovereign. Do you believe that he's good? And I want to explore that. I think the text explores that this morning. There are three scenes in our chapter. Scene one is leaving and loss, first five verses. Scene two, which makes up the bulk of the chapter, is turning and returning. It's this dialogue between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. And then scene three is arrival, bitterness, and hope at the end. So what is our context? Ruth is very simply a short story. It's a beloved story. For many of you, it's your favorite Old Testament story. It's narrative history. There's nothing fanciful about it, nothing remarkable about it, nothing extraordinary. There are no miracles. There are no signs. There are no wonders. It's simply a story about real people in a real place in a real time. And the context of the book gives us clues to how should we, we should interpret the story. So, verse 1, back to chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. We're instantly clued in. If you're familiar to the book of Judges, you know that Judges was an incredibly difficult and dark time in Israel's history. Judges tells the story how time and time again Israel was unfaithful to God, unfaithful to the covenant, breaking covenant with God. In fact, there's this repeated refrain over and over in the book of Judges, and it's this, Israel, quote, did evil in the sight of the Lord. There are parts of the book of Judges that are hard to read, hard to fathom the depth of sin and depravity that is happening in Israel, the level of unfaithfulness and unrest. In fact, there's another repeated phrase in Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's within this context that the book of Ruth takes place, the story of faithfulness and loyalty and redemption and kindness. It's almost this quiet pastoral story in the midst of great tribulation and trouble, but it is not without hardship. It's not without difficulty, not without trial. In fact, that's where our story begins. Scene one, leaving and loss. The first five verses set the stage for the remainder of the story, the remainder of this chapter. Notice the setting in verse 1, Bethlehem in Judah. We see it again at the end of verse 2, Bethlehem in Judah. We learn that the characters are Ephrathites from Bethlehem. This phrase, Bethlehem in Judah, should be familiar perhaps gives us a clue to the larger meaning. You've heard it elsewhere, 1 Samuel 17. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in Judah. Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to 
be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. This might be an ordinary family in Bethlehem, but something larger is going on. Bethlehem, the house of bread, literally, Beit Lechem, house of bread. It's an important place for the future of Israel, for her king or her future king. But the first problem that comes is leading us away from Bethlehem and Judah. It's leading us to Moab. Look at the text. Verse 1, there's a famine. They pack up their things and move to Moab. Verses 3 and 5, there's death that occurs. These two crises that no one has any control over. These events and circumstances outside of the control of these people. Famine. There's no rain. There are no crops. The food supply is dwindling. Famine hits in verse 1. How are, we to, how are we to think of famine? Remember, we're in the book of, or we're in the context of judges. Famine, if you recall, is a category of judgment promised by God if Israel was ever unfaithful to the covenant. Famine. Deuteronomy 28, the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron, and the rain, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Covenant curse for unfaithfulness. And here we have Elimelech and Naomi living in a place under the judgment of God. Decisions have to be made, stay or go. Stay in the promised land, go to the land of the pagans. What to do? Elimelech makes the decision, takes his wife and his two kids and leaves. Sojourns for a period of time. Interestingly enough, though, at the end of verse 2, if you look, it says they went into the country of Moab and remained there. It's as though this temporary idea became more permanent as time went on. Now, the text is silent whether this is a faithful or a faithless decision. A sinful decision, perhaps? Is it a lack of trust in God? Or are they going to a place where God has provided? We know from Genesis that the patriarchs went down to Egypt when there was a famine. The text is silent. But verse 3, tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. Naomi is left without her husband, and she is left with her two sons. Verse 4, the sons marry Moabites. Now, this is a direct contradiction to the law, to the covenant, Deuteronomy 7. You shall not intermarry with them and give your daughters to your, their, your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods direct violation. They live in Moab for 10 years. It appears that the women are barren. The text does not say, but there is no evidence of grandchildren, no evidence of progeny. There's 10 years, plenty of time for childbearing. Verse 5, tragedy strikes again. Her sons die, and now Naomi is left without her husband and left without her two sons, and it's not just her two sons. The word that's used there is an interesting word to use for an adult married man. It's actually young man or child, the word there, and it heightens the sense of sorrow. It heightens the sense of loss. It's not that she's lost her sons. She's lost her boys. 
The boys are dead. She's left Bethlehem with her family. And she's left without. The emptying of Naomi is complete. There's much to lament and to be sorrowful over. This staccato-like narration, almost like the first couple chapters of Job, wave after wave of tragedy strike and the losses pile up, leaving and loss. Can you see it? Do you see it in the text? Naomi has experienced the death of her husband, her two boys. Reality is the death of hope, the death of her future She has no physical protection. In those days, a widow was most likely going to end up destitute. She's living in a foreign land. She has no heir. The family name will die out. How many questions must be swirling in Naomi's mind at this point? Why did we come to Moab? Why this? Why now? What if we had stayed in Bethlehem? What if my boys would not have married Moabite women? What is God doing? How many of us question the decisions we've made that have resulted in hardship, trial? You didn't think it would turn out that way, did you? How many of us have found ourselves caught up in events and circumstances outside of our control? None of us control the weather. None of us control the crops, the food supply. To a great extent, we can't control whether we live in a land under the judgment of God. We must personally repent of our sins, for sure. We can't control life or death. As Proverbs says, we plan our ways, but what? God directs our steps. In loving kindness... God orchestrates the events and circumstances of life, ruling over the affairs of men in order to bring about His good purposes. So let's see this continue to unfold. Leaving and loss, scene two, turning and returning. Look at verse six. Verse six is one of the most important verses in the whole chapter. It's a hinge verse. It switches the gears of what's going on in the narrative What's happened in verse 6? She rose, she goes with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. He had visited His people. Some of your translations say paid attention to or came to the aid of or showed concern for. It's used in other places, Exodus, children of Israel and Egypt. They heard that the Lord had visited His people and had seen their affliction. Psalm 65, you visit the earth and water it, you greatly enrich it, the crops, the agriculture. 1 Samuel 2, 2, the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Genesis 21, the Lord took note of, that's the same word, Sarah just as he had promised, and she had Isaac. Or First Samuel 15, the Lord of hosts says this, I will punish, visit, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. As one commentator notes, when God visited someone, it meant that he intervened in their lives to change their circumstances or their destiny. 
It refers to God's active involvement in human affairs for blessing or for cursing. Indicates God's special attention to an individual, end quote. Here in the midst of the rebellion of the time of the judges, everybody going their own way, here in the midst of the covenant curse of famine, the Lord visited His people. He attended to them. He took note of them. He intervened in their lives to change their circumstances. Naomi's hope and life have been devastated, but God is working in the middle of it all. There's no food in the house of bread. There's no food in Bethlehem, and the Lord visits and provides. The literal word is bread. He provides bread. And so it's in light of this visitation that they make their return. They begin their return. Do you see it? Verse 7, they begin, so she went out from the place with her two daughters-in-law. They went on their way to return to the land of Judah, turning and returning. Twelve times this word is used. It's a special word in the chapter. It means a reversal of direction. Just as the Lord is reversing the famine in Judah, Naomi reverses her direction. For Naomi, it's a return to where she's come from. But not for Orpah and Ruth. They're Moabites. They're not returning from where they've come from, at least not yet. Verses 8 through 10, Naomi pleads with both of them, return. Return to Moab. And you see, did you catch the blessing that she gives to her daughters-in-law? Look at verse 8. This twofold blessing. Verse 8 Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, with their father in law, Elimelech, with their husbands, her sons. May the Lord be kind to you as you have been to me. And look at verse 9, this second part of the blessing. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband, to find rest, meaning protection and security of a new marriage, new husbands. The idea is go, get remarried. May the Lord be kind to you in this way. This word kindness, key word for the entire book. There's two levels that we see kindness. There's the human level and then there's the divine level of kindness. It's only used three times, but it's implicit throughout the story, and I hope we see that as we continue on. Kindness. Maybe you've heard the word chesed, kindness. It's a word that's beautiful in the Hebrew, but hard to translate in the English because we do not have a word in the English that wraps all of the following into one. Love and loyalty and faithfulness and compassion and goodness and mercy. We don't have a word for that, but that's the Hebrew word. And oftentimes it's translated steadfast love. Pastor Brent read that, Psalm 100. Faithful love, loving kindness. You take loving and kindness and smash them together, and they're trying to translate this word. Faithful deeds, unfailing love, sometimes just faithfulness. 
Chesed is an action word, this kindness that's not a mere sentiment of love, but as one commentator says, Chesed refers to an act performed for the benefit of a person in real, desperate need. Kindness. 66 times, 66% of the time in the Old Testament, it's used of God to His people. The kindness and the goodness of God. May the Lord be kind to you. Verse 9, this, they raise their voices and they weep. Of course they do. Verse 10, no, we will not return. We will go to you and to your people. Verses 11 through 14, so Naomi says again, she says it twice. She says, turn back, my daughters, turn back. Why will you go with me? She peppers them with these rhetorical questions. Did you catch it as we read them? Do I have sons in my womb right now? No, of course not. Do I have a husband right now? No, of course not. My future has no sons. My future has no husband. My future has no heirs. And your future, if you go with me, will have no husband. And even if I would hope, which the text is trying to tell us that she has no hope at this point, even if I would hope beyond hope, which is doubtful, and I would have a husband tonight and I would conceive, would you wait another 18 to 20 years? No, you wouldn't. And on top of that, you're Moabites. You're not Israelites. It won't work out. Don't you see? It's useless for you to come back with me. It's the impossibility of providing you new husbands. And look at verse 13. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. Here it is. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. It's more hard for me than for you is the literal translation. The word hard, hard, is mar. And we hear that at the end of the chapter when she says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Same root word. It's more bitter for me than for you. Could be understood in a number of ways. Maybe the life ahead in Bethlehem is too hard for me. I can't provide you with rest and husbands. I'm worse off than you. To be without an heir, to be without a husband meant certain destitution. Go back to your homeland. Find new husbands. Find rest for yourselves. It won't work out. Or perhaps it's my bitterness is too much for you to handle. The NET translates it this way. My intense suffering is too much for you to bear. Have you ever felt that way? You can't bear my suffering. Her grief and her loss and her, bitter, her bitterness are deep and complex, and the Lord's hand is against her. She's Job-like in her understanding of her circumstances, is she not? God is behind it all. She intellectually assents to the sovereignty of God. God's hand is behind it. So in verse 14, the sisters lift up their voices and weep. Orpah actually leaves. Verse 15, you see that the scene changes. Orpah is convinced. 
that Naomi is right and we picture her off in the distance. But just before that, something has changed in Ruth. Did you catch it? Look at verse 14. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She held fast to her. That's the word. It's the same word from Genesis when a husband leaves his wife and holds, leaves his family and holds fast to his wife. Ruth clung to Naomi. Something has changed in Ruth in the middle of it all. Remember, Ruth has lost a husband in this too, right? It's not just that Naomi's lost two sons. In the middle of it all, in the middle of her personal grief and Naomi's grief, Ruth clings to Naomi. We see this devotion, this loyalty, this uncommon kindness that she's exhibiting to her mother-in-law. will be confirmed here in a moment in her great oath of loyalty. At verse 15, the scene changes. Orpah leaves. The reader is left with the two women standing at a crossroads, Israelite and Moabite. Naomi pleads once again, go back, go back, return. Look at verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Strange encouragement to go back to the pagan gods of Moab. Chemosh, the pagan god of Moab. Earlier in verse 8, she had spoken a blessing of Yahweh onto her daughters-in-law. May he deal kindly with you. And here, go back to your gods. Strange encouragement. Certainly she is not thinking straight. The pain, the heartache, the hopelessness of her future has clouded her theology. Verse 16, in almost exasperation, do you see what Ruth says? This is beautiful. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. The word leave, I wish that the ESV would have just translated it literally, forsake, abandon. Do not urge me to abandon you, to forsake you. I will not. And then you have this great oath of covenant loyalty, verses 16 and 17. It's hard to see in the text, but I want you to see, perhaps, as we walk through it, that her words get closer and closer and closer together, starting from the extremes and working closer. Watch, 16a, for where you go, I will go. Now look at I'm sorry, it actually is the, the first part of verse 16, do not urge me to leave you, okay? So leave, follow this, leave, first part of verse 16, and then death parting you from me is the end of verse 17. You see this, leave, death parting. Now watch, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you're buried, I will be buried. It's these polar opposites working to show everything in the middle is included. It's all encompassing. And in the very middle, what do you have in the middle of verse 16? 
Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This is the turning of Ruth, turning from Moab to Judah, turning from the Moabites to the Israelites, turning from Chemosh to Yahweh. Ruth is saying, don't make me return. I'm turning to you, to your people. You see the intensity of her pledge? She speaks the name, the covenant name of Yahweh, the Lord. She speaks the name of Yahweh on her lips. And she says, almost the self-maledictory oath, may the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. This uncommon commitment, this uncommon kindness, This is the turning of Ruth. I said earlier that this word used 12 times is like a turning, a reversal of direction, but it's more than that. It's often used of turning to the Lord, a returning to the Lord after forsaking sin. Something has happened. The text is silent, but you have to read between the lines. Something has happened to Ruth. In the 10 years that she was in Moab, God is calling her out of darkness. Much like Abraham of old, and there's similar language. The parallels are striking. God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, the great covenant of Genesis 12. Go, go from your country, from your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. He calls Abraham out of Ur. He was worshiping the moon god of Ur. So too, God calls Ruth out of Moab away from her people, away from her gods, to the one true God. It's likely that Ruth has heard the stories of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness, His saving of Israel from Egypt through the plagues of giving the lands to Joshua, the promised land. She exhibits a faith that can only be described and explained by the grace of God. And she was all in. Naomi returns to Bethlehem. Ruth turns to Yahweh. Naomi returns to her people, the Ephrathites of Bethlehem. Ruth turns to a new community of people. Ruth forsakes her people and her gods. She won't forsake Naomi. She's left everything to follow. You see it. She's trusting in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What a beautiful picture of Ruth's kindness to Naomi and God's kindness to both of them. So verse 18, Naomi hears this and finds that Ruth is determined. And so she relents. She says no more. We turn to scene three. The narrator opens scene three on the arrival of Bethlehem. The women have arrived in Bethlehem to the house of bread. The town is stirred. There's a bit of an uproar, a bit of a scene, some excitement, some murmuring. Do you see that? The whole town is stirred. Why? Look at the text. Because of them. (laughs) The whole town is stirred because of them, and the women ask, Could this be Naomi? Is this her? Now, why is it that the whole town is stirred because of them? 
It's been 10 years at least or more. Naomi was perhaps a familiar figure. Elimelech was maybe well known in the town. But she has aged and not well. The grief, the lines, her stature is probably showing this grief, this sorrow. And you know their, their question, could this be? Is this Naomi? Well, where's Elimelech? Didn't she have two sons? Where are her sons? And who is this striking foreigner that she has with her? Who, is this Naomi? You can understand their question, how she's changed. In verses 20 and 21, we have Naomi's bitter assessment. We don't learn her name per se, but we learn it the way she describes it. She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Her name actually means pleasant, and I think the women are saying, could this be the pleasant one? Is this Naomi? There's, there's something familiar about her, but she has changed, and Naomi insists, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara. Why? The text is clear. She is clear in her mind. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Do you see Naomi's twofold lament? She takes the title of God upon her lips twice El Shaddai. So it's translated Almighty. She also takes the covenant name of God on her lips twice the Lord Yahweh. Watch. El Shaddai has dealt very bitterly, be very bitterly with me. El Shaddai has brought calamity on me. Yahweh has brought me back empty. Yahweh has testified against me. I have experienced bitter providences, and the text actually seems to indicate that she is embittered. That's why she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She goes on to explain her interpretation. Verse 21, I went away full. Even the way she says this, watch. Even the way she says this, in her mind, there's opposition between her and God. I left full, empty, the Lord brought me back. She claims that God is a witness in court and not an advocate. He has testified against me. He has witnessed against me. And her multiplied calamities have blinded her to what is true. She can't see all that the Lord is doing. We have to cut her some slack. The reader might be able to start seeing things happening behind the scenes, but she can't see these things. She should be able to see some of it. But she's blind to it. Some of what God is doing has yet to be worked out. Is that true in your life? Some of what God is doing has yet to be worked out. We get hints in the next verse, verse 22. Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. <laughs> Look at this end of this verse. And they came 
to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Do you know what that means? That planting has already taken place. An entire growing season has already taken place. God has preserved the crops and harvest is at hand. Naomi is back. She can't see, can she? God has preserved her life for these 10 years. The barley harvest has just begun. She has a sweet and loyal daughter-in-law right beside her. What does she say? I am empty. In loving kindness, God orchestrates the events and the circumstances of life, ruling over the affairs of men in order to bring about His good purposes. And so let me reflect for just a few minutes in conclusion. I want to ask you a few questions. In light of this text, in light of what you see in Naomi's life and in Ruth's life, will you believe that God is good to you even in your sorrow? I want to return to the question at the beginning of the sermon. Has your high theology resulted in poor doxology? Undoubtedly, Naomi had proper theology. She knew her circumstances weren't fate. They weren't chance. This wasn't an accident. She knew the whole time who was behind all of this. We might say Naomi believes that God is a sovereign God. She has good theology. In 2004, you might recall, there was a massive earthquake in Indonesia. Christmas Day plus one, December 26th, this massive earthquake resulted in an even bigger tidal wave. The tidal wave, the tsunami, killed a quarter of a million people, 225,000 people. John Piper was interviewed, and uh, it's one of my favorite interviews that I've heard of, of John's ministry, was interviewed on NPR of all places about this tragedy, and this is my favorite quote, and it brings together why we must insist that God is in control and over calamity. This is John Piper's quote. If you strip God of his sovereignty, his absolute control over the world in calamity, you don't have a sovereign God to offer people on the other side of calamity, which is their only hope for being able to survive the awful future that's just been opened to them. Amen. To say that God is sovereign over and in calamity is good theology. But notice how Naomi's good theology gave way to poor doxology. The Lord's hand has gone out against her. The Almighty has embittered her and brought calamity upon her. Yahweh is 
a witness against me. He is not my advocate. And the key issue for Naomi and the key issue for us this morning is the question, is the Lord for me? She spoke a blessing over her daughters-in-law. May the Lord deal kindly with you. She knows that the Lord is kind. The problem is she doesn't see that the Lord is kind to her. She's convinced that the Lord's against her. But the Lord has been kind. He has been kind to her. Do you see it? He's visited his people. He's given them food. He's returned. She's returned to Bethlehem is a testimony of his kindness. He's changing her destiny, her future, her people. She can't see it yet, but it's coming. She just can't see it yet. And even, I think even greater, is the fact that here you have Naomi, I'm sorry, Ruth, standing right next to her. A testimony of God's grace. Fiercely loyal daughter and even friend. We see that we're going to see this in the rest of the story. She claims she's empty handed, but she can't see the forest for the trees. Ruth is right here. God has called her out of darkness. What about you? Has the Lord visited you in the midst of your heartache? In the midst of your affliction, has he been kind to you? Has he been good to you? Reminded of the simple song, count your blessings, name them one by one. So will you believe that God is good and kind even in your trial? Second, will you return to him? This word that's used 12 times, a dozen times, turn, turn, return, turn. To see hardship as an opportunity. It was a hardship, a famine. And Limelech, there's, it's silent, the text is silent, but is this an opportunity to trust God to stay in Bethlehem? Hardship as an opportunity to turn our eyes to God, to come back to God, to return to God. Joel chapter 2, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For, why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, kindness. And he relents over disaster. Oh, how I have had to think about my poor doxology in the midst of trial. To return to him with high praise. Oh, God, give us strength to do that. Finally, will you not lose heart? 
Will you recognize that in your affliction you are not crushed? In your perplexity, you aren't despairing. In your persecution, you have not been forsaken. Having been struck down, you aren't destroyed. Don't lose heart, dear saint. This is momentary and you are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Let me help you answer the first question. How has God been kind to you? God has been kind to you in Christ. God has visited you in Christ. God has changed your circumstances and your entire destiny in Christ. God has provided you the bread of life in Christ. God is keeping faithful covenant with you in the new covenant in Christ. Don't lose heart. Fix your eyes once again on Christ. God has brought you out of darkness through Christ. And maybe this doesn't make sense to some of you, and you're in the far country. You're in Moab. And you don't know Christ, and you're in darkness. And can I earnestly plead with you this morning and exhort you to come to Christ? To the one fully God, fully man, came, lived a perfect life, died in the place of ruined sinners, buried. On the third day, Christ was raised again to life, now seated at the right hand of the Father where He reigns over all things, interceding for His people. Will you come to Christ? Forsake your gods. Repent. Forsake your sin. Come to Christ. He's kind. He's kind. He's been infinitely kind to us on the cross and the forgiveness of sins. Look to Christ today. And you, his saints, will you trust him as he leads us on this journey? Let me pray. Oh, Father, you are good. You're good to us. We are sorry for poor doxology. Will you help us by your Spirit that we would look to things not seen but unseen, that we would set our affections on Christ, we would set our minds on things above, not on things of this world, that we would trust that you are working out all things for your good, for your glory, for our good. Oh, Father, bless these, your people. May we be reminded of your kindness to us in Christ. May we rest in him this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.